Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining you today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today I'm joined again with Dr. Louise Hitchcock on April 13th, 2021. Dr. Hitchcock joined the show and we had a conversation about Greek island architecture in the Bronze Age. So predominantly in that conversation, we chatted about the islands of Thera, which is present-day Santorini, uh, Kia, which is in the Cyclades group of islands as well, and uh, Crete. And uh, then on June 13th, 2021, Dr. Hitchcock joined the show again. We had a conversation about Theron civilization during the Bronze Age, so again, which would be present-day Santorini. Dr. Hitchcock joins the show again today, and in this conversation, we're going to chat about the Minoan civilization in the Bronze Age. Dr. Hitchcock is Professor of Archaeology in the Discipline of Classics and Archaeology in the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies within the Faculty of Arts at the University of Melbourne, based in Australia. She has written over 100 publications over her career, including co-authoring the book, Aegean Art and Architecture, which was published by Oxford University Press. And she's author of the book, Theory for Classics, which was published by Routledge, and she joins the show today from Melbourne, Australia. Welcome back on the show, Louise. Great to be here. So to start the conversation off and to create sufficient context and background, and then we'll work our way into the details, Louise, who were the Minoans? The Minoans were the um, Bronze Age people on the island of Crete, which is one of the largest islands in the Aegean Sea. Um, not quite as large as Cyprus, or I believe as Sicily, but uh, still pretty large. And um, they settled there probably around 7,000 BC, but their civilization becomes well known with the um, appearance of the Minoan palatial buildings in around 1900 BCE. Okay. And what's known about where the term Minoans it came from? Um, quite a bit, actually. Uh, the term Minoan is a modern term applied to the civilization on Crete by Sir Arthur Evans, who excavated, it was the first to excavate one of the Minoan palace sites at Knossos, just outside of Heraklion in north central Crete. And he gave them the name based on the mythical association with king Minos. He initially, in his early reports, referred to them as Mycenaean. And then when he realized he was dealing with a much earlier uh, civilization, and also one that was quite different, he decided he needed to come up with another name. Um, in ancient times, they're referred to as Keftiu by the Egyptians, and as Kaptaru by the Akkadians of Mesopotamia, and Crete is referred to as Kaftor in the Bible. Okay. And I'm going to bring up uh, later in the episode, King uh, Minos, uh, uh, and, and understand better about that, uh, that figure. Um, but before we get there, uh, I want to cover some other ground with you. Um, their, their writing systems. So what, what's known about the language they may have spoken? Uh, do any of their writings survive? Um, quite a 
bit of their writing survives, but it remains undeciphered. Um, in fact, I was just reading an honors thesis by one of my colleague's students on the um, uh, Cretan hieroglyphic script, which is the first script to appear on Crete. Um, by hieroglyphic, we mean that it's pictographic, not that it is derived from or imitates Egyptian hieroglyphs. And this early script was written primarily on clay bars and on um, roundels and on seals. And then slightly overlapping with Cretan hieroglyphic is the appearance of a new script known as the Linear A script, which was used to write the Minoan language. And it's not related, it does not seem to be related to any language, living or dead. Now this script was borrowed by the Cypriots to write their own language, which is also undeciphered, and that's referred to as Cypro-Minoan. And the Mycenaeans of the Greek mainland also borrowed the Linear A script and used it to write their own language, which is an early form of Greek. And we refer to that script as Linear B and Linear B out of all these um, languages used by this same uh, linear script is the only one that's been deciphered. And so I want to clarify then. So Linear, linear B is... Uh, not associated, not um, believed to be associated with with um, the, the the Minoans, but more the Mycenaeans, or something different. That's correct. It's associated with the Mycenaeans. However, Linear B is used on Crete after the Minoan civilization collapses, and most of the sites, except for Knossos, are destroyed, and the Mycenaeans seem to establish themselves there and begin writing in Linear B. Now, when you think of the script, you have to distinguish between the script and the language that it's used to write. Just as we use the same alphabet today to write English or French or German, uh, maybe with some diacritical marks added, but uh, we use the same script to write any number of different languages, and that is the case with this. Okay, and Linear B and Linear, linear A has come up several times in the periphery on these episodes an episode on on the podcast hasn't been dedicated to to the linear a's or b's but but it comes up um as part of other uh, responses and guests you've probably mentioned it too louise when you've been on the show in the past can you can you take a moment i want to i want to address the linear i guess in this case linear a but i don't think we have to circumscribe it if it's natural to speak about the linear b in this response but can you expand on for everybody listening and me included, what what linear A is in in terms of like when someone hears linear linear A and you mentioned script, but can you can you can you expand on what that is? So if someone's looking at at this in in present day term um, pr present day times, um, whatever has been um, stored in the records, what are they actually seeing? Okay, sure. And by the way, I would like to if you do want to do a detailed. Uh, um, discussion of Linear A. One of my former students is one of the leading experts in the world on Linear A and has published a book on it. But when we script, we're referring to approximately 86 syllabic signs, which are incised on clay tablets. And the clay tablets are usually about the size that you would hold in your palm. And um, these 86 signs, they're syllabic. And usually what you have is a consonant and a vowel, and a consonant and a vowel. Um, occasionally you have 
uh, a few signs that seem to be just a single um, consonant, and sometimes you have a consonant-belt consonant. And in addition to these approximately 86 signs, we have a number system, and we also have what are known as ideograms. The ideograms tend to be um, incised pictures that would refer to a commodity. For example, you might have syllabically spelled out um, a phrase which we can't read, but it would refer to at the end a commodity. For example, you might have a picture drawn of an amphora, which would refer to amphoras or of a horse. Or um, there's a very famous set of tablets in Linear B known as the chariot tablets, where you have uh, each one is dealing with the construction of chariots. And so you have to just recap, you have the syllabic signs and you have the ideograms, and then we also have a number system. And I believe the number system seems to be sexagesimal, um, but I'm not sure about that. And what we have mainly of what's left of linear A, um, part of the reason it can't be deciphered is we're both lacking uh, what we call a bilingual inscription, which would give a translation, but we only have like, um, a few thousand where you need thousands in order to do a sort of um, mm. a sort of statistical analysis mm -hmm. uh, to crack the language. So we have mainly what's written on tablets, but we also have um, a number of ritual inscriptions which are um, inscribed on libation bowls that have been left primarily in Minoan peak sanctuaries, um, which is uh, a Minoan religious spot. Um, we also occasionally have short inscriptions, for example, on the rim of a jar. But again, most of them are on clay tablets. We also know that the Minoans wrote on parchment. And an example that we know this because we have ceilings, which is a piece of clay that has a seal impression stamped on it. And the ceiling, in some cases, they're curved and have a string mark, indicating that they were um, attached to a scroll. Um, in other cases, we have what are known as packet ceilings, which on the underside of where the seal has been stamped, on the underside, there's an impression of where a packet of parchment had been folded and pressed into the clay and then tied to it. And then we also have a few other unusual items like um, a couple pieces of gold jewelry that are inscribed. And we have some, um, uh, clay cups that have an inscription inside in octopus ink. And it's been speculated that these may be incantation bowls because in the later Near East, you have um, clay bowls inscribed with Aramaic incantations. And so based on analogy with that, it's suggested that these could have been incantation bowls, but we really don't know what they say. The uh, clay tablets is it believed that Minoans would have created these, or is it believed that the clay tablets were created at a later date? Um, no, the Minoans would have um, created them. And the thing is, they also, part of the reason we have so little, in fact, we have like sites where there's like, like maybe one or two clay tablets found, but the only places where we have an archive, and I don't mean an archive in the true sense of word, but a collection of tablets, we only have archives from two sites, one from the Minoan villa at Hagia Triada in Southern Crete, and one from the Minoan um, palatial building at Catazacro in Eastern Crete. 
and it's thought that the clay tablets were in contrast to the ritual inscription on bowls it's thought that the clay tablets were mainly um, administrative records and they were not intentionally baked but some of them may have been accidentally baked in the fire that destroyed the building and some of them were actually not baked and disintegrated um, and so it's not because they were administrative records they were kept temporarily and maybe thrown out on a yearly basis and that's part of the reason we also uh, don't have more it's kind of like you know you don't keep your tax returns more than a few years and you don't hang on to your shopping lists unless you're a hoarder and it's, so it's thought that these tablets um, represent this kind of use and that's why we don't have more is there any leading theories in the scholarly community about where the Minoans came from it's Crete is an is an island so I presume at one point in time I presume they came from from somewhere is there is there any leading theories about where they may have come from yes absolutely um first of all I mentioned the Neolithic period that Crete was permanently settled around 7000 BCE we also have some evidence that Crete was visited in the Paleolithic period based on stone tools that have been found but these settlements did not seem to take or they seem to be only temporary and whoever it was moved on. Now, in terms of the 7,000 BCE settlement, um, it's pretty much believed by most scholars that they came from Anatolia. And this is based on the um, type of food that they grew. And it is known as a bread wheat complex. And this bread wheat complex is only known from Anatolia at this time, not from mm. Europe. So it's thought that they came from Anatolia. Um, there also seems to be some evidence in the form of um, DNA haplogroups. And I'm not completely certain of what that is, but there seems to be some kind of DNA evidence also indicating an Anatolian connection. And then there's been speculation that because bovine imagery is so dominant in Crete, and it's also a major feature in Neolithic Anatolia that this could be another connection. But I think the bread wheat complex is our most solid piece of uh, information um, about an Anatolian origin. And then over generations, Crete became its own unique, developed its own unique uh, culture and civilization. Fascinating. Eighth uh, century, roughly, is it, is it believed people, some people were seafaring in 8th century BCE? Do you mean the 8th millennium? Oh yes, of course, 8th millennium, thank you. Um, yeah, they probably would have traveled in what we call log boats or rafts. Not a lot has been discussed about this with regard to Crete, but I've seen it discussed with regard to Cyprus because um, we know that Cyprus was settled from the Levant um, based on the introduction of the Levantine fallow deer into Cyprus. And there's been a lot of speculation as to how they got the deer there. And it's been suggested that maybe there was a raft and the deer swam or rode on the raft. We don't really know. Um, but I would have to, I would suppose that either some kind of raft or longboat carved out of a, like a, a tree um, would have been the main forms of transportation. And maybe they like went from uh, coastal Anatolia to an island to another island and mm. then ended up in Crete. Interesting. What's known about 
uh, their governance structure or, or model uh, during the bronze during the Bronze Age? Basically, um, it's all speculation, and this is because we can't read their texts. It's like we know that the Mycenaeans were ruled by a king because the Linear B tablets give us the entire uh, sort of social hierarchy of the Mycenaean political system. We don't have this for Crete. We have a throne room at Knossos, but most scholars um, believe that the throne room was a ritual area, perhaps even that a woman sat on the throne. I've written an article arguing that it was a shrine of Daedalus. What we do seem to have are rooms with benches in them in many of the elite buildings or large halls, elaborate halls for meeting. And we also have um, seals and seal impressions that depict an elite, usually faceless. There's not, not too much in the way of individual portraiture. And what you have are elites depicted in wealthy garments, uh, fancy hairstyles, but more or less like a faceless bureaucracy. And um, I re re recently presented a paper and a poster arguing that the Minoans were governed by a type of deep state. Now, when I say deep state, I don't mean uh, a mysterious cabal of bankers. Um, what I mean is that they were, I believe they were governed by a religious career bureaucracy. Um, the original use of the term deep state comes out of political science, and it's simply used to refer to a career bureaucracy that continues on even though political leadership might change. And so what I've argued is that these bench rooms and um, this sort of elite um, bureaucracy uh, sort of perpetuate, was self-perpetuating and used religious ritual uh, to perpetuate um, their uh, place in a sort of Minoan hierarchy um, that and used religion to sort of justify uh, their continued existence. And you mentioned the term, and I didn't want to be, you know, pounding on the keyboard in the background, Googling something, um, although I do that one, once in a while. Um, but you mentioned the term uh, uh, deadlist. I might be pronouncing that incorrectly, uh, but that's how I heard it was, was de deadlist as, as something on, on, the, on the throne. Can you, ex can you explain what that is? Yeah, Daedalus is associated with the mythology of Minos, which I can't say I know a lot about. I don't do later Greek mythology, but um, Daedalus is regarded as the um, Cretan or Minoan or Greek god of craftsmanship. And um, he's famous for in storytelling for creating these wax wings, which he and his son Icarus would use uh, to escape Crete and Icarus falls too near the sun, or flies too near the sun, and the wax melts, and he falls into the ocean and dies. Um, but in actual reality, uh, with Daedalus, this idea of Daedalus as a god of craftsmanship, later Linear B texts from Crete mention a Daedalion, which is a shrine of Daedalus. And so there's this unidentified shrine of Daedalus. Now this goes into more with the Levantine connections there's also an Ugaritic god of craftsmanship known as Kosar Wahasis. And Kosar Wahasis was kind of the um, Canaanite god of craftsmanship or the Canaanite Daedalus. 
and his mythology states that he had um, a throne in Egypt and a throne in Th in Thebes, and he had a throne in Crete. And so some people have speculated, including myself, that perhaps the throne in Crete refers to Kosar as a god of craftsmanship um, that is sort of uh, the Canaanite Daedalus. Okay. And let's, I was going to go to the palaces and settlements next, but I want to um, put that aside for a moment because um, I think this is a, a, one of the, um, the traditions you explained there, I think is a good segue for uh, their religion orientation. What else is known about their religious orientation? Um, well, we know that there was a, um, a lot of religious activity involved with natural features. Uh, we have sanctuaries that are on uh, mountain peaks and also in what we call sacred caves. And we know this through evidence of feasting activity in these places and religious offerings in the form of, I mentioned the stone libation bowls that were inscribed already. Um, different sanctuaries sort of have a different sort of cluster of artifacts associated with them. Like there's one peak sanctuary that has um, clay limbs associated with it. So it might be related to a place where people sought healing, uh, like in the much later Greek cult of Asclepius. In some, you seem to have connections with the worship of animals or bulls. In other ones, you have lots of bronze offerings left. And so why caves and mountain peaks? The mountain peaks, it's been suggested that maybe this is something that comes from the Near East. We really don't know for sure. Um, with caves in the Neolithic era, caves seemed to be a place where um, people buried their dead. And this might have turned into sort of a place of ancestor worship and then evolved into a place where deities were worshipped. Um, some people argue that the Minoans worshipped a great goddess because of the um, dominance of female imagery in Minoan art. Others would say it was a polytheistic uh, religion, more in keeping with um, the other surrounding religions of the time period. Uh, we also know that they venerated sacred stones that is a stone as a feature in the landscape that would receive offerings. And these are referred to as Betels. Now the word Betel actually comes from the Old Testament where it refers to Beth El, and that's a stone that Jacob anointed with oil as a representation of Yahweh. And the veneration of standing stones is something that is quite common in the Levant, um, both in, um, Canaanite Lebanon and in um, uh, ancient Canaanite Israel. You mentioned earlier at the start of the conversation, Louise, King Minos. You also mentioned, um, I believe you said bulls a, a few, few minutes ago. We're chatting about about Crete. Can you can you can you t take a moment and um, talk about the the, the, the Minotaur? myth and uh, the mythology around the, the, the Minotaur as it relates to Crete and what's what's known about why that um, tradition may have been associated to Crete in the first place? Well, bull imagery is prominent on Crete. Um, the idea of a bull man, a creature that's part bull, part human, 
That's something we know more pictographically from Mesopotamia. It's quite common in Mesopotamian art, especially in seals. Um, we don't really know it so much from Crete. Um, with the bull imagery, which is especially prevalent at Knossos, I've actually suggested in my PhD, which was on the Minoan palaces, that the palaces were not palaces, but more like temple administrative structures and that each one focused on a different localized deity. And I suggested because of the plethora of bull imagery that Knossos was focused on the veneration of a weather deity um, because you have uh, the Near Eastern weather deity Adad took the form of a bull as did later Zeus, who was also said to have a birthplace on Crete. And so I take Knossos to be a place where sort of a Cretan weather god may have been venerated. Um, and that's where the bulls come into it for me. And the idea of the bull man in the labyrinth comes from the idea, I think, of uh, the Minoan architecture as being really complicated. And um, labyrinthine, our word labyrinth is actually a Minoan word, um, which means house of the double axe. And uh, so it's sort of like these, it's kind of a mashup of legends and ideas. The um, popular Greek myth about um, the, the Minotaur Asterion and the, the Greek hero um, Theseus, uh, is that believed that that was then, because uh, we're, we're, we're talking about um, the, more the Bronze Age, so that's going back pretty far and, and, and it sounds like their actual communications hasn't been, been deciphered. So that, that popular myth is believed to have been created um, after, like later than the, uh, uh, the, the, than, than the Bronze Age. That's correct. Um, you'd have to talk to somebody who studies Greek mythology with regard to that. I have heard people speculate that perhaps Minos was a title rather than a name. So it might refer to some sort of prominent person, and it might even be connected to Egyptian menis. Um, but I really, I don't really have an opinion on that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So palaces and settlements, if someone was to go to Crete today, um, and it's a fairly big island. Um, how much of the architecture from this period of time still survives that, that's, that's known to, to scholars? Um, well, we have like uh, seven or eight palaces. It seems like a new one is always being mm -hmm. discovered. And there are a number of excavated settlements um, and also sort of palatial style villas that have been excavated around some of the palaces. Um, and in addition to that, there are a few earlier settlements that have been excavated. There are also a few settlements from after the uh, destruction of the palaces that have been excavated. So there is quite a lot to see. Now, in terms of the preservation of the architecture, it depends on where you go. The Minoans tended to build into the slope of a hill. And so the rooms that were built more into the slope would have better preservation than um, as you're coming outward from the slope. Um, if you go to Akrotiri on Thera, the houses are also very Minoan in style, but they're preserved to the second, third story. So they give us quite a good indication of what the Minoan buildings would have looked like. And then, of course, Knossos was actually heavily reconstructed by Evans in concrete, and not all of those reconstructions are accepted 
in modern scholarship. Some are, some aren't. Um, but there's quite a bit to see. My husband had never been to Crete, but he'd heard me talk about the Minoans for years. And uh, in a rental car, we managed to cover 26 sites and museums in mm -hmm. 10 days. Mm -hmm. And I'd say there are about 29 palatial villas around uh, to see. Wow. Did he have a fun, fun trip there? Did he enjoy the experience? Yeah, he did. He did a lot. But uh, some of my friends were asking me if I brought him home in a box afterwards. <laughs> why, why is that? Oh, just because 26 sites in 10 days is <laughs> rigorous. Some of them are post-palatial era when the people on Crete moved to establish uh, settlements in mountainous regions um, in order to uh, be safer from uh, piratical raids. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in a normal in a normal uh, trip for for you, it sounds sounds like, but it might have been uh, a new type of experience for him. Uh, yes. So in the uh, I think it was the last time we chatted, and you just mo mentioned Acra Terry moments ago um, on uh, on Thera. Um, I believe you mentioned in the last episode that we did that uh, there's strong speculation i don't know if you said strong or not but there's at least speculation that uh um thera might have been part of the um government um the state of uh the minoan civilization so is that because is that because of similarities with the um the the architecture on thera or is there more to it than that more to it the architecture was actually modified to make it more minoan in style um the fresco paintings and technology are um, similar to what you find in Crete, except they're, of course, better preserved. You find uh, Minoan seals in Thera, mm -hmm. um, also what, and including packet seals, which would have had writing. Um, they found the double horns uh, carved out of stone that is common, commonly found on Crete there. Um, and so it's the loom weights, so they would have used the same weaving technology. Um, the pottery styles are different, and some of the, um, in that they use more of a polychrome style of uh, painting their pots, and also there are some shapes found in Thera that found in Crete. I don't believe that Crete ruled over Thera. I believe that you had people there um, that gained. Um, that gained large amounts of wealth through maintaining a close relationship with Crete. But you, you'll ask five different people, you'll get five different opinions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and, and probably common when you're speaking about um, a period of time, 5,000, 4,000 or so uh, years ago. Um, trade and commerce. What, uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to start with a question about more the international side to their trade. So in the bronze age, what's known about if, and to what degree the Minoans did international trade, did they, did they travel, um, quite a bit outside of their immediate vicinity? Is there any evidence of other cultures in a, in a, in a material way, um, visiting, visiting them and doing trade? Um, we have lots of evidence. Um, I mentioned that uh, before the palaces, you start having raw materials coming in from outside of Crete. Well, Crete's art is very elaborate in terms of these sort of 
carved bullhead cups and gold seals and ivory seals and other elaborate things. Crete is very poor in raw materials. And this way, they kind of remind me a lot of the Sumerian culture. Sumer was very good at creating artworks, but was also very poor in raw materials. And for Crete to be making ivory seals, ivory would have come from Syria and probably more likely from Egypt. Um, they needed copper to make bronze, um, copper and tin. Copper would have had to have come from Cyprus, uh, Canaan, or Anatolia. Um, gold would have had to have come from Egypt. So it, they were heavily dependent on um, foreign trade. Now, this trade seems to start, especially with the introduction of uh, more copper tools and elite objects in the form of ivory and gold found in tombs in the um, third millennium. That is from about 2900 to 2000 BC from items found in tombs. And it's thought at this time they were still traveling in these long boats. Now, something that happens around 1900 BCE is the Minoans adopt ship technology from the Near East in the form of a ship with a deep hull and a mast for a sail. And this shrinks maritime space and brings them more within the Near Eastern sphere of great kings and great civilizations. And um, the acquisition of sort of elite trading materials uh, sort of accelerates quickly. And it's not just that the Minoans were acquiring things from abroad, as well as probably technologies. They were also um, transmitting some of their technologies. We know that the Egyptians acquired Minoan cloth. We don't actually have the cloth, mm. but what we do have are wall paintings um, in Egypt that depict uh, Minoan cloth designs. And we also have um, Minoan style frescoes appearing throughout the East. We find them now, excuse me, at the Syrian palace at Katna, at Alalakh in Southern Anatolia, at the Canaanite palace at Tel Kabri in what is today Northern Israel, and at the Egyptian site of Avaris or Tel al Daba in the Delta region of Egypt. And the ones in Tel al Daba are especially elaborate in that they depict scenes of Minoan bull leaping. So quite a bit hmm. of interaction. Hmm. Um, how do you, how do you as a, as a scholar speculate how in, in the second millennium BCE, um, communication would have occurred with these different cultures, presumably the Minoans didn't speak the same language as the Egyptians and vice versa. And, you know, and the same with the Levantine uh, region. Um, how do you, you know, and it's a very pragmatic question. How, how do you think they would have um, been able to fil facilitate th this, this type of interaction? Well, based on my study of linguistic anthropology, where you have trading cultures um, appearing in modern history, for example, the time of uh, the various colonialist imperialist adventures um, coming from Europe into the New World, um, into the Caribbean, into Africa, age of Barbary pirates, you probably had what we would call a type of pidgin language, 
which is a, tra a, a trade language where you do a lot of pointing and gesturing and use of, uh, start to learn certain words, like we would call loan words. Loan words are words borrowed from one language into another, and they are frequently take the form of words for commodities that one culture is acquiring from another culture. Um, for example, in the linear B texts, we have references to sesame and coriander. These are Semitic loan words because those spices come from the East. Um, and so, and you think now vodka is a Russian word because vodka came originally um, from the area of Russia and Northern Europe. Um, so you would have a pidgin language. And in some cases, these pidgin languages develop into what we call a Creole, which is an expansion of a pidgin language that begins to develop its own grammar and vocabulary um, and so forth like that. Um, a good example of this is what we call the lingua franca. When we use the term lingua franca today, we think of an international language like French or English. But the lingua franca was actually the name originally given to the language spoken by the Barbary pirates, which we still don't understand very well, but it's known to be sort of a, a combination of Arabic, Turkish, Greek, Italian, and some other languages. So I would expect something like that was taking place. And you might have had also in terms of at seaports, you would have had um, merchants and uh, sh traders on ships that may have been a little bit more multilingual. Um, we also know, and this is from the post-Minoan era, later in the Bronze Age, um, we know from a group of tablets found at the city of Akhenaten in Amarna, Egypt, which dates to the 14th century. Um, there are 300 tablets known as the Amarna tablets, but they're not written in Egyptian. They're written in um, Akkadian cuneiform. And these are diplomatic texts. Akkadian becomes the diplomatic language of the region of the Mediterranean by the late Bronze Age. And we have seven letters from the king of Cyprus, king or governor of Cyprus to the Egyptian king, one to the governor, um, discussing trade. And we know from scientific analysis of the clay that the clay came from Cyprus. So it meant they had an Akkadian scribe working there uh, to communicate. So in the post-Minoan era, trade accelerated in connections accelerated to the point where you actually had a language of diplomacy. I can relate to uh, to part part of that um, arriving in a in a country in the in the Mediterranean, for example. And if I don't know the uh, if I don't know the the native na native language, I find I use my hands a lot a lot more, and then and then slowly um, start throwing in a, a word word at, as a time as I at a time as I as I as I pick up the language more. Yeah, and also, I mean, I found the first time I traveled overseas, I found. I could just go into a store and buy something and I didn't have to do a whole lot of talking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's ways to get by, especially with, with trade, right? If you have, uh, if you're holding, holding something, people can, uh, quickly pick up on the, uh, on the signs and vice, vice versa. Um, yeah, and I, I would also just add that I used to know quite a bit of modern Greek from working on Greek excavations. And I used mm -hmm. to know quite a bit of Arabic from when I lived in Syria. And I've now forgotten a lot of both of those languages, but mm -hmm. at my taxi cab and restaurant, Greek and Arabic are still pretty good. 
yeah yeah exactly it's like the uh kind of the the uh the the the, the the almost the visit the visit terminology right when you when you when you're just traveling around um and i know that uh so i want to talk population and i know this isn't always the uh the easiest uh question to, to answer when you're going back so many e years what is but but you did mention that uh seven or eight palaces survive so this isn't necessarily a um it's not a, like a like a it's all relative right but but it's not a small i'm not talking about just one small settlement area um the island's fairly large is there any um is there any you know what do you infer about the the size of the population of uh the minoan civilization on crete in the bronze age i haven't tried to infer myself but i do know that there have been population estimates made for knossos with over a hundred thousand people and I would expect there would be a few hundred thousand people have lived on Crete, maybe even up to perhaps a million. Um, we do know that, again, with the destruction of Minoan civilization, there seems to be a depopulation. Okay. What, uh, so, so wrapping up here in a, in, a, in a few minutes, and I do want to get to what, what scholars believe happened to their, their civilization. Um, is there anything else uh, on artwork? You brought up artwork, so I do want to I want to cover it before we we move to the kind of the closing uh, question or or or, or two. Um, is there anything that you want to mention that you haven't yet on artwork that you think was very pronounced uh, by the, the the Minoans in the in the uh, Bronze Age that's worth mentioning? Yeah, I do, and especially there's a big transition. Um, we haven't really discussed this, but it seems to be. Um, there's what we call a first palace period and a second palace period, or what we call the old and new palace period. And the transition from one to another takes place around 1700 BCE when um, there seems to be a large uh, earthquake destruction. And it's after this earthquake destruction that um, there's not only a proliferation of more palaces and palatial buildings and sites, there's also more writing. Um, we have very little writing actually from the first palace period and there's not just a proliferation of sites and writing, um, there's also more um, development in the artwork in the sense that a lot of the art in the first palace period tends to be geometric forms um, and you start to get more pictorial artwork in the second palace period, mm -hmm. depictions of people, scenes, groups, um, very realistic and very naturalistic. Um, the Minoan artwork, it stands out from all the other cultures surrounding it, um, even in Greece, in terms of its naturalism and the high degree of sophistication it attained. There's a very fi famous ivory statue um, from the site of Palais Castro on Eastern Crete, which is a settlement. And it's not just ivory, it's what we call chryselephantine, meaning it's made out of ivory, gold, and steatite. It's about, um, we call it a statuette, actually, because it's about 50 centimeters tall. It's not um, monumental artwork. Uh, but the realism in terms of its um, carving is extraordinary in the sense that you have veins depicted on it, fingernails. It's extraordinarily realistic in a sense that uh, it's something we don't see um, until you see it in the Amarna art of Akhenaten in Egypt, but you don't really see it again 
so much until fifth century Greece. And so I would say the, um, the amount of uh, high degree of naturalism uh, in Minoan painting and uh, carving and the depiction of the human form, animal forms, plants, um, instead of plants being rigidly portrayed vertically, which you even see in Mycenaean art, Minoan art, it looks like the reeds painted on a pot are blowing in the wind. And I would say it's this high level of naturalism that really distinguishes uh, the Minoan civilization. So working our way to um, wrapping up the conversation today, Louise, what happened with their civilization? It's a question that archaeologists don't address enough, um, in my opinion. There used to be an idea that the eruption of the Santorini volcano caused the end of Minoan civilization. Um, we now know that this isn't the case because um, I've seen ash layers in Minoan settlements. Um, I've seen the rebuilding that goes on. There's a whole different pottery style um, after this, the period of the eruption. And Minoan civilization continues to another 50 to 100 years. Some people suggested that there was inter-island warfare and that the Mycenaeans took advantage of this and stepped in and took over Knossos. Um, another theory or speculation is that the Mycenaeans um, came in and conquered Crete. Um, so those would be, I would say the idea of inter-island warfare and Mycenaean invasion are the two main areas of speculation, but not enough work has been seriously done. I used to believe in the Mycenaean invasion theory. I'm more now um, of the opinion that there was inter-island warfare and the Mycenaeans stepping in and taking over. And I base this on uh, the sort of just the number uh, or proliferation of palatial style uh, villas and palatial style buildings that are occurring in this period. And I think there was an increasing competition among different elite factions and possibly even an attempt to have somebody emerge as a paramount ruler um, that led to the, the destruction. And I think you mentioned it might have been in your first response, one of the initial responses, um, when uh, scholars believe that the Minoan civilization ended. But just to make sure that it's in the ep episode, when, when, when is that? What, what century or, or year as an estimate? Approximately 1470 to 1450. And this is based on poverty style. Okay. Okay. So closing question. Um, how would you summarize then when, when people are looking back on the, the Minoan civilization, how, how would you summarize what their civilization would have been um, really known for comparative so maybe more sophisticated or more more known for comparative to other civilizations at that time. Where do you think that they were, you know, re leaders uh, as a civilization in, in certain aspects? Oh, gosh, I believe they were leaders in the development of their art and architecture and trade and wealth. And um, I switched from studying ancient Mesopotamia into studying the Minoans because um, visually and architecturally, it's an extremely captivating culture, um, especially with the complexity of their buildings and their, um, 
their architectural attainments and their artistic attainments. There's really nothing comparable uh, to the Minoans. And I believe that they heavily influenced uh, the Mycenaean civilization and helped drive trade and interaction in the region. Um, and it's the development of all these things that really makes it possible, I think, for the later classical moment to happen, all these technologies. Yeah, and when I hear, uh, you know, a group of people um, finding a way to settle on an island possibly 9,000 years ago, that, that, that gets my attention right, right there. <laughs> Thank you for coming on the show again. Oh, what was that, Louise? Yeah, one thing, it's like um, they didn't just settle on an island because a lot of people settled on islands, but mm -hmm. they really created a unique and advanced civilization on that island. Yep, yep. Always a pleasure chatting with you, Louise. Thanks for coming on the show again. Same here. Enjoy Tunis. Thank you, Louise. So again, everybody, the couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Hitchcock wrote, she is co-author of Aegean Art and Architecture, and she's author of Theory for Classics. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Louise and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.